Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Uh, hello and welcome to this episode of the Family Business Podcast. My guests today are Josh Barron and Rob Lockenauer from Banyan Global, based over in the States. We are going to be covering some of the topics that they have highlighted in their um, book, and um, I'll let them introduce that and themselves to you. So, Josh, do you want to kick us off and uh, give us a bit of background as to who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for having us on this. We're looking looking forward to it. So I'm originally from, from Denver, Colorado, and moved out east for, for college. I studied business as an undergrad, but then kind of unusual for a family business advisor, perhaps I actually uh, studied uh, international politics in, in the UK and in the US for my graduate school, basically really interested in why sometimes the most powerful countries in the world fight each other to the death and sometimes they get along just great. What's what causes the difference? And I kind of had alongside that kind of had this parallel track as a strategic a strategy consultant. I worked for Bain & Company um, in the US as well as in South Africa and Australia. And then I was part of the, kind of the founding or startup of a spinoff of Bain that worked with foundations and nonprofit organizations. And so my first real exposure to anything kind of family enterprise related was in the world of family philanthropy and just really understanding the way in which these family foundations made decisions that were so different than the way these large institutional foundations did. And so I ultimately, just by happenstance, got connected to the, the, the firm that I joined actually about the same time as Rob, about 12, 13 years ago. And didn't really know that this was a profession that people did for a living, but honestly, I can't imagine doing anything else. It's, I get such, feel such a reward, such a believer in the power of, of family businesses and the impact they have on society. And then about eight years ago, Rob, I, and some other folks spun off and created Banyan. It's been such a, a glorious ride ever since. And one of the things I like is that my world that was on these parallel tracks kind of come together because I, you know, I teach uh, at Columbia Business School, a class in, called Managing Conflict in Family Business. And a lot of the concepts actually come from the work that I'd done earlier in life on, on studying international politics and so on. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been um, a, fun, a fun experience. And have, for myself, actually, I have, I have boy or girl twins that are the same age as Banyan, basically, to the month. So that was an exciting, exciting time period. Exciting uh, or scary? <laughs> both, yeah, both, yeah. They, it was, it was, it was, it was definitely the most memorable time of my life so far. Uh, starting, starting a new business and, and starting a new family. Yeah, and uh, uh, wonderful. Uh, either one in isolation, you're going to lose some sleep. So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> doing both at the same time is impressive. And uh, Rob, same question to you: is, is tell us a, a bit more about your background. Hey, Russ, it's Rob. Good to meet you, first of all. And thanks for having us. My background similar, but a little bit different from Josh's. I was groomed to be a steely-eyed capitalist. After college, I joined PepsiCo, which is known for really hard-edged culture, really aggressive marketing. From there, I went to Harvard Business School, which is known as the West Point of Capitalism. Mm -hmm. Then uh, after graduating, I went to Boston Consulting Group which is a leading firm looking at business strategies, how companies win and lose in competitive marketplaces. And I love that stuff. My, this path, part of my path culminated in writing my first book, which was called Hardball. Are you playing to play or playing to win? Mm -hmm. And it was seven strategies to trounce your competitors. It did really well. And we did really well helping companies you know, win in the marketplace. But uh, ultimately it was, it was unsatisfying. It was like, Everything was one in, in one area. It was about maximizing profits. 
after my father died and we had our third daughter, my wife and I, I questioned the path I was on and I left BCG. On the advice of one of my best friends, I started looking at uh, family businesses. And that's when uh, Josh and I met. It was, I think, about 10, 10, 11 years ago now. And eventually, as Josh mentioned, we co-founded Banyan together. And there at Banyan, both in the people in Banyan and definitely in our clients, I found people who cared for things more than profits. They had, striking to me, just a different definition of winning. What does it mean you know, to do well? What is success? They cared about their communities. They cared more than profits. They cared about their employees. They made these, what from the outside seemed to be highly irrational decisions. And that fascinated me. Like, why are they doing that? So I decided I had a lot to learn from these people. And, and Josh and I and the other people at Banyan figured out that we had a lot to offer in helping these owners of great family businesses. So I was hooked. And I've been the CEO for Banyan since its inception and I've enjoyed leading it. We're about 30 people headquartered in Boston. Our, our other offices in Sao Paulo, Brazil, about two thirds of our work is in the States and mm-hmm. the rest of the work is everywhere. Josh has done a lot of work in Southeast Asia, all through Latin America. We have great clients in Europe and also the Middle East. So that's a little bit about our background. Fantastic, thank you. And you have written a book together the Harvard Business Review Family Business Handbook. And as the name suggests, it's a a very comprehensive look at family business and how to maximize the opportunity that family business can bring. Before we get into some of the specifics of what we're going to cover in the show, what's your overall hope for readers of this book? I think our overall hope is to change a core misperception Family businesses are really poorly understood and often dismissed kind of as a terrible idea. I was with my mom this week and I took her to an acupuncturist and he said, oh yeah, my wife's an accountant. Whenever a family business comes to her, she turns down the work because she thinks it's so hard to work with family businesses. And, you know, TV shows like Succession, you know, compound this misperception that it's all, you know, greedy people hurting each other. Mm. Our hope is to pop that bubble and sh- and show how, because they do, show how family businesses can thrive across generations. Not only the family business, but the business family can, can, can thrive. So how to do that is really what our key message is about, which are, which is that the decisions that the owners make is the key to whether the company and family will thrive or will end up in destructive uh, conflict. So in the book, we identify the core owner level decisions that you gotta make well, and you gotta make together. And our hope is that people in family businesses or related to family businesses, customers, suppliers, in-laws will read the book and, and get kind of the insider's guide, insider baseball guide to the way great family businesses are run and the way that they go across generations. Fantastic. And Josh, is there anything to, to add to that from your perspective? I, I think you'll you'll hear us use the word ownership a lot, probably in this conversation, certainly in the book. And um, I think that's really what we see as our, our firm and, and hopefully this book's contribution to, you know, a well-developed field. People have been working on this, you know, not as long as maybe working on other kinds of business challenges, but it's a field that's emerged over the last 20, 30 years. And, and our sense is that there's been a lot of great work done to help people understand the importance of taking the family part of a family business seriously. And I think our addition to that, that's obviously that's critically important, but our addition to that is this whole idea of ownership and why it matters. And you know, as I, I mentioned, Russ, I teach in a business school. We don't teach ownership. We teach, uh-huh. we teach management. We teach a little bit of corporate governance. Ownership is something that is not really discussed very much in, in, by, in you know, business books and business schools and everything related to it. And that's partly because the way people think about businesses are these large public companies where the owners really don't have much to do. They Uh trade shares on apps or they invest in index funds who own the entire market. They're not, they're they're institutions or or traders. They're not people. And, and in that, in that world, ownership doesn't mean very much at all, but, but we want you to think about ownership like you own your house or you own your car 
It's something that's very personal, you're very connected to. That's what we mean when we talk about ownership in the context of a family business. And it's so, it's so incredibly powerful and we believe so incredibly misunderstood. And that's a lot of what we're hoping gets remedied through, through this book. And you highlight in the book, the, as you mentioned, that power of family ownership and what that can mean for that business owning um, family. Uh, and one of the things that you mentioned specifically is the five rights of family owners. As a starting point, can you give us an overview of what those five rights are and, and what they mean? Sure, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll give it a stab, and then Rob will will, will uh, add in. Two. If you forget um, one, John, you only yeah, have to remember. I'll, I'll see if I can get all. I'll see if I can get all five. I, I can promise I'll get at least four of them. No, these are these are kind of imprinted onto Rob in my brains at, at this point. I, I'm not sure what it would take to actually forget one right now. Start saying actually, them in your sleep. <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah, well, the tattoos I think are are, are coming. Rob already had masks made for us with the, with the book on them. Yeah, so look, the the reason why ownership is so powerful is that owners have rights. You know, they have like these legal rights to do things that no one else in the business has. Like maybe the government has some 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 access to these, but until you give them up to others as the owners of anything, of a house, a car, a business, as we'll focus on, you have these these rights that give you the incredible ability to influence everything about the business as well as you know about the family you know too by extension and that's that's sort of where the power comes from and and the five that we focus on in the book is is first of all is is the right to design so you know you think about your house you know you you're you're creating your new house from scratch your dream home you're architecting like how many bedrooms how many bathrooms like what's the what how does it actually flow all together in a family business you can design what do you want to own together is it is it just an operating company or a series of operating companies? Do you want to own real estate? Is that going to be separate or all together? Do you want to have a, a philanthropic thing or, or everyone does that on their own? There are all these choices you have to make about what is it? What is your family business? And then you have to just say like, who gets to own it? Is it all, you know, all descendants of the founder or just those who work in, work in the business or contribute to it? Like the different, you know, different ways that that's structured. Um, and who gets control? Do you, do you share evenly or is it a certain person in each generation gets all the, all the power? And you, all these different choices that you see add up to very different types of family companies, depending on how you, how you structure those. So that's the first one is about the right to design. The second is about the right to decide. I'm gonna, Rob, you take over from here. You, you're, I know you're, you're big on decision-making. Yeah, pick up, pick up the right to decide. <laughs> You've done one, Josh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, the second, <laughs> decide. Owners can have the right to make every single decision in their business. Uh, especially in a, you know, just in a startup when there's one person or one woman who started a business, she's going to make every decision. You know, I don't know if it's a bake shop, you know, how to price, what to make, where to locate, all, how to own it, all of these things. As companies and families grow, especially across generation, there are some decisions, they're called reserve decisions, that the owners probably want to keep to themselves. But given the complexity, they'll find that many of the decisions they shouldn't. They'll hire people who are better at logistics or better at pricing or better at baking than they, than they are themselves. It's a real hard thing for especially first-generation owners to let go of decisions. And it's actually a really hard thing for second-generation owners to kind of figure out, well, what do they want to decide together as a group or individually or let, let management do? What, we've learned from our clients is there's a nice model to describe how ownership, how, how decisions can be made in a family business. We call it a four room model, going back to the architectural design thing that Josh mentioned. There's a management room where the CEO has got a bunch of decisions to make and it's usually thousands of decisions. It's a hierarchical system. People are fired or hired depending upon their competency in doing things, set of decisions in there. The next level up is the board. If you're big enough, you should consider having a board of directors. And boards are very different than owner rooms. A boardroom, not many decisions. You should be overseeing the business. You should decide if we're on the strategy. You should hire, fire the CEO. You should set the annual dividend. And that's it. You should oversee the business, but not put your hands into the business every day. 
But who runs the board? That's the owner room. This is where owners play. They again have very few, but actually the most important decisions. The reserve rights they can never give up are the things which Josh was talking about, about the type of ownership. Who should own this place? What do we want to do? Do we want to grow the place? Do we want liquidity? Do we want to control in a, in a certain way? The fourth room, which is also super important for longevity in a family business, kind of sits over to the side. We call it the family room. And family rooms actually have, they, I call it, they trade not in competency or wisdom or power like those three other rooms. They trade in emotions. A great family businesses that we've gotten to know consciously develop the unity of their family over time. If, if you don't develop unity, you'll have disunity. It'll be very hard to keep the family business together. They look after the development of the next generation. They figure out how to bring in, in a positive way, spouses and in-laws into their business. So in making decisions, you have to figure out which decision belongs in which room, which person, which, which people belong in which room, and also how to connect the rooms. So going from a single owner just opening up her bake shop to something that's maybe $100 million, you're going to be on a journey of deciding how to decide where and how decisions are going to be made. And that's a right of owner. And that's the second right. Fantastic. And who's going to take the third? <laughs> uh, I'll, 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 I'll jump back in. Maybe, yeah, we can we'll, we'll alternate here if you want, Rob. Actually, I'll do the next two. Then you get the last one on, on transfer. So the third, the third right is the right to value, which basically means if you own something, you you get the right to benefit of you know to benefit from what's left over after you pay all your bills and all that kind of stuff. You get you get you get what's left over, the, the residual from it, and uh, you know because of that, you get to decide what success means for the business. And you know when you work for when you work in a public company environment like both Rob and I did in our earlier strategy consulting days. We never asked the we never had to ask the question of what do you value, because it was it was assumed. Oh, we value increasing our returns as shareholders. It's a very easy way to decide what you value. And one of the one of the wonderful things about working for family businesses, whether they're privately held or they're maybe publicly traded but private, you know, family controlled, is that that's not necessarily the case. And, and they may value growing the you know, the, the, the size and, and scope and, and financial, you know, stature of the business, but they might value other things as well. Like they might value taking money out of the business to give it away or to just spend it on whatever they want to spend it on. They also might value control. So basically being able to control your own destiny. And one of the things that we talk about is that you can kind of take those three, three main types of things you can value, growth, liquidity, and control. Think about them as kind of a triangle. And mm -hmm. as a as an owner, you can kind of move yourself from one edge to the other, trading off some things for others. And that's kind of what we try to really focus on is that you, you have this right to define what you value, but there are trade-offs in life and you can't have everything. You have to, if you want more of one thing, you have to get, you know, get it by giving up something else. Uh -huh. And those are all decisions only the owners can make. If, if, you know, no one can come in and say, oh, this is a great business. You should double it in size and you should borrow a bunch of money from the bank to do it. Like, no, you don't have to do that. That's your choice. <laughs> and that's a lot of the, the work of ownership is really wrestling with those, those trade-offs and choices uh, that you get to make as, uh, through this right to value. Yep. And what's super and then, interesting in some of our clients to build on what Josh was saying is most family businesses are owned by more than one person. And um, it's not always the case that everyone has the same owner strap owner goals in mind it could be that if josh and i own a business together he wants to grow it and i want to take a lot of money out of it and this is kind of a latent source of conflict where it's just kind of percolating along every year i say more money out josh and says no i want to grow it we really uh, hope our the family businesses that are listening think clearly and uh, about growth liquidity and control and then talk to each other about what they want. Mm -hmm. And if you can, we find once you talk to each other, it's much more clear. And sometimes the clarity is, oh, we all want the same thing. Sometimes the clarity is we want such different things that we shouldn't own this business together. And, and often, just to build on what Rob said, oftentimes the owners are actually on the same page, but they haven't communicated it. Uh, and really, that's it's really the... It's, if there's the gap is between where the, the owners may have a pretty shared perspective, 
but the board doesn't know what it is or the management team doesn't know what it is. Uh And that can cause tensions or different directions or even decisions that are counter to what, to what, to what the owners want. Uh, Robin actually, I believe the only time Robin and I've worked together with, with, with the family, we usually work on separate things. We worked on one together and it was this family that had created this really incredible uh, luxury business. And, uh, you know, they, they, it basically was an art project that they had started that became this very well-known, well-known brand. And what they, they didn't really care about growing it. You know, it's interesting. They could have grown it a lot, but, you know, they, they used to say, you know, as long as it continues to go up year over year, just, you know, incrementally, as long as the business still pays out enough for us to fund our lifestyle. And as long as we keep the control, we want the culture to retain what we started with. That's really what matters to us. And, and then they you know, brought in a hard-charging non-family C- CEO who really wanted to grow the business and started like, you know, taking, out, taking out borrowing money and all, you know, taking these big aggressive bets, all things that were perfectly reasonable, you know, depending you know, if, if that's what the owners wanted, but they didn't. And that actually caused a fair amount of conflict and, and sort of steps backward. And so there was a need for them to really kind of step back in and say, here's what we want. These are our objectives. Let's make sure that the strategy of the business is in line with those. And that's a a really valid point there around the introduction of people who are outside of that family system as well, because going back to the four rooms, it's not always the case, but perhaps when businesses start up, it may be, but but as they grow and as families grow, there'll be different people populating each of those rooms. And so ensuring those conversations are happening and that the ownership philosophy is being passed down to those that are making decisions within the business makes everyone's lives easier, right? That's a really good point. We find that when family businesses are maybe establishing their first board of directors, if they get people who are independent directors who are from publicly traded companies, those people are so used to the same goal whole shareholder return has to be grown, that they often have time, uh, hard time understanding what the family wants. We urge our owners to get together collectively and write down, we call it owner guardrails. Here's what we're looking for from the business, be it growth, liquidity, or control, and if so, what kind of control, and have a discussion with those directors. We also urge our family business clients who are setting up a new board, consider if you're getting independent directors, people, at least some of them with family business experience because they know the trade-offs that are going on in such a family. Yeah, fantastic. I think we were up to- um, Yeah, that's three three down. Number four now, yeah. Yeah, number four. So uh, number four is the right to inform. Basically as as an owner, you have access to information, really more or less anything you want to know, everything from the cap table, who owns shares to, you know, who are the main customers and suppliers? How's the company doing? And, and no one else, as I said, maybe other than the government, depending on where you live, if you haven't gone public, right, going, ex- making a decision to share that information, you are private. You can, you can control that information. And because so much of that sits within the owners, it gives the owners of a business really the ability to control the communication flow of information, you know, how everything flows. And that's within the broader ownership group. If you've got a few that are really connected and then some others that are, are not so involved, the next generation, spouses, employees, suppliers, and so on. Like the, There are all these choice points that you have to make as as an owner about what do you do with that information? Do you tell people, you know, how the company's doing or what your succession plans are, or, or you know, who owns the place, all that kind of stuff. And what, what we find is that there's this natural inclination to hold on to it. The, there's this inclination towards privacy. And, and it's an understandable one because information, you know, knowledge is power. Information can be used for, for purposes that you don't want. You know, some We've heard people say, well, we don't want our employees to know how much money they'll make because then they'll ask for a raise. Or (laughs) we don't want the next generation to know how much money we have uh, because then they won't work as hard. And so there's this really really understandable instinct for privacy inside of a family business. And I think what what we talk about in the book and we think is important to counterbalance that with is that is to think about what you're giving up by keeping too much control over information. Because the way that you communicate is actually how you build the trusted relationships that 
every family business needs to need, needs to thrive, needs to needs to grow. And, and if you're not if you're not building up that trust among whether it's among the current owners or with your employees and all those kinds of things, um, you're not going to be able to have those trusted relationships that that you need to be successful. It's, it's one of the things that makes family businesses you know bring some of their competitive advantages is your is the ability to bring to build these long-term relationships with employees, with suppliers and customers and so on. And if, they, if they're in the dark about all these things that are important, it becomes hard to do that. And, and sometimes it gets too focused on you know, the financial information, but there's all kinds of things that you oftentimes can share. What's our succession plan? We plan to be in business for a long time and so on. There's lots of things that you actually can share to build up those level of trusted relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think if we look at things as, as they are currently, we're obviously facing a global pandemic and the impact that that's going to be having on people's concerns about their their futures and, and their livelihoods, whether they're part of the ownership group or whether they're employed within that business. Presumably, that uh, a level of transparency and communication, which, which family businesses are able to, to do without you know, having to do profit warnings to the stock markets and that, and that kind of stuff. That, that's a hugely valuable way to be keeping people on top of what's going on within the business as well. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, to your point, Russ, I mean, we were really curious about, you know, when this all started happening in March, you know, just, it just felt like a tsunami of overwhelming disruption, everything going on. And so we, we launched a survey to try to figure out how people were managing through this time period, got a couple hundred about a couple hundred responses globally, we'll be redoing the survey. But that communication was one of the things that came out the most. And I think to your point, it's, you know, what people really want to hear is, are we going to be okay, right? And you obviously, you don't want to, you don't want to be deceptive or anything like that. You want to be, you want to be transparent, you, but you also want to be kind of positive. And, and the reality is, is that if you don't share what's going on, people are going to draw their own conclusions. And more often than not, their conclusions are going to be, you know, more pessimistic, more negative than probably the reality. And so there's just such a, there's such a huge value always, always in, in sort of dri- in driving the narrative, right? But especially at a time like this, when people are so uncertain about so many aspects of their life, to give, to drive, to create as much certainty as you, as you, as you can, as your uh-huh. business is going through this. Yeah. Uh, and I think as well, because it is a, it's a global event it's a global pandemic it's not affecting a particular area a particular sector or it's kind of agnostic of that people are going to understand that times are tough and that that it's going to have an impact on their business so communicating that's not necessarily going to be a surprise but as you say it does take out that element of people making their own mind up of well it must be bad news if we're not hearing anything from the owners or the people that run the business people will people i'm thinking of one conversation we had with the families we work with and they they are very tightly controlled about you know what the owners will say they they're all working in the company they're they're in what we call this partnership approach where you have to be employed in the business in order to be in order to be an owner and they're very much involved in the business but also, you know, pretty careful about what they share and what they talk about. And one of the things we found out was that yeah, this is pre-COVID, is that the the senior management team really wasn't clear what was going to happen. Like the, the one generation mm-hmm. was coming up towards retirement, the next generation was there, but wasn't really in the front and center. They really weren't in in the leadership driver seats so far. And what the what the management team, they didn't need to know all the specifics about, okay, this ownership percentage is going to this person, or even like how much money we're making. They just wanted to know, are you committed to this? Do you plan to transition to the ne- this next generation? Help us understand that you're taking this seriously, because we take this business seriously. It's our, it's our life. We may not own it, but we've worked our lives here. We want to mm-hmm. know that's going to happen. And I think it just, it just, just having that conversation and giving yes. this forum yeah. to to frame and talk about how what's going on in, in that sort of succession process helped just to calm the nerves a tremendous amount. And, and they sort of got into this, ba- you know, helpful back and forth dialogue of the, the non-family executives kind of helping the next generation to get ready and all this wonderful things came out of it. That was done without sharing a single piece of financial information, uh-huh. uh, but it really helped to, to, to sort of change the tide and in, in sort of how people were feeling about where things were going. Fantastic. 
Thank you. So, so to summarize where we are with the, the, the five, we've done, we've done four. So we've yes. done de- design, decide, value, and inform. Yes. We call the fifth one transfer. And it's, it's, it's a huge right. And transfer is the right that you have as an owner to determine the future of your family business. You can say you're 60 year old, you own something with your sisters and you got, a, you got a series of choices in front of you. You could sell the business and many do just to whoever, to a private equity firm, to your competitors, whoever. You could divide it. We have seen many families that there's a classic one that's actually in Texas where they, I think it was like a pest control company, father owned it. He had three sons and he said, okay, son number one, you get West Texas, son number two, East Texas, son number three, North Texas. Mm -hmm. And they just divided Texas up. So that's a good example. We see it often and people think that division of the family business can help in many ways because they know there's always sibling rivalries that can go on. And this is a way to get take care of sibling rivalries. There are many downsides of dividing, just you give up the economies of scale of having a bigger family business. And you can, I guess the potato famine in Ireland happened because they kept making smaller and smaller pots off of the land that they have. The, what we see most often, however, are family businesses that want to try to, in some way, transfer the family business to the next generation. And that's really complicated. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. The the, the analogy we often start with on this one is what it's not. And what it's not is, do you remember The Lion King, the, mm-hmm. that movie, Broadway play? Yeah. The beginning of the movie, at least, Rafiki, who's like the baboon, he holds up the little baby cub, Simba, I guess is his name. Yeah. yeah. And he's to be the next ruler. And they hold him up over the African savanna and all of the animals in the kingdom bow down to him. Great music. Papa's very pleased. Well, that's a transition. We're all done, right? Uh-huh. Well, not really. The whole story is about that transition failed. Dad died too quickly. Brother was not on board. Kid hasn't growing up to do all of these things. Uh-huh. What we find is that there's a natural tendency to try to have a repeat performance. Oh, we'll, we'll have the next generation be just like us. Rarely, I'd say one out of 20. Is that anywhere close to what can happen? So what should happen is you need to think through three interrelated things. The first thing is, how are you going to pass down your assets, right? As Josh was mentioning earlier, it could be that you own a business. It could be that you own land. It could be that you own a lot of other stuff. Is all that going to be bundled together and passed to the generation? Is it all going to be bundled together and passed equally to the generation? Are you going to put it, if you're in a state, in a country that has trust, we put it in a trust, we do it directly, a dozen, really complex with long-term implications. So the first thing you need to think through carefully is the passing of assets. But you're only started in your journey once you have thought that through. The second big thing is, what are the roles? How, what are the roles in your generation? What are the roles in the next generation? The, Overly focused is, we think, the role of the CEO of the business, right? That's because that gets so much publicity and business presence. The CEO is all powerful. No, no, no. This is a family business with family owners. The power actually exists upstairs with the owners. And the CEO's got that management room that he or she's running, hopefully well, either as a family member or a non-family member. But there are usually other very important roles if you're trying to go for passing down generations, including board of directors. Do you want any family member on the board of directors? Owner room. Will you have a leader of your owner room who's really getting the voice of all the owners together? Remember, if they go separate ways, you're going to have real troubles. And family room. Who will run your family room? They're great leadership roles that should be thought through and kind of and allocated out, developed for over time. So roles is the second big thing. Be, given there's so many different roles, you really got to work a lot on developing the capabilities of the next generation. And given there are all these different roles, you have to start laying out some of the roles and then a developmental plan. There's so many 
I'm sorry to say, so many mistakes, easy mistakes to make at developing your own children in the business, we often advise you also get an outside board or some advisors to help you with development of your son. I'm a pretty good CEO. Even Josh would agree, I think, sometimes. <laughs> but one, one time, uh, for one summer, my daughter, Ellie, who's our little daughter, worked as a summer intern in the company. During that summer, I was not a very good CEO. It's really <laughs> interesting because you're working, you're used to working with Josh and with Karen and other people who are your business pals. And then you add a family member inside, the levels of communication and everything just went wonky that summer. I developed a whole new appreciation for what our clients go through. Realize, we suggest to our clients, realize you may not be at your best when you have your son or daughter or your cousin, I'm sorry, your, your niece or nephew in the business with you. So developing their capabilities is probably not something you should do directly. So those are three of the big things that we say, don't just put Simba up and let the Savannah kneel to him, think through how the assets are gonna go, what roles there are, and how you're gonna develop the capabilities for those roles. Yeah. And yeah, I like just that, add, oh, go ahead, Ross. So I was just going to say, I like the Simba example because the, the way I look at it is that that line has got absolutely no idea of what is ahead of him. He's got no concept of what's happening at that point, has he? He's, he's thrusted up there as the um, heir apparent and the successor. You're the new leader. <laughs> you no choice. Sold, no discussion. Is, that, is your, that is your role. And uh, everything beyond that is then... Uh, designed to, to help him get there. So yeah, so yes. really and his first happen. reaction as Simba is to say, I don't want that. I want to go somewhere else. I got to go on my own journey. Yeah, I won't take what dad gave me. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And yeah, of course, in literature, it's all over literature, but Lance yeah. King's a really good example. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, Josh, I interrupted. No, no, no. I, I think just to, just to amplify a couple of things that, that Rob said, especially in that development of the next generation part, I think one of the one of the hardest things to do is to develop the next generation to be owners. Because as I said, there's lots of places you can go to, you can go to business school to learn how to be a good manager. You can get training on that. You can go work in another company. You can, you can sit on a, on a nonprofit board to learn how to be a good board director. It's actually not so easy to learn how to be a good, a good owner. And, and we, you know, one of the things we talked about is the importance of really thinking about ownership as a profession, that there is actual expertise that you need to, that you need to develop. And there are certain skill sets that you need. Like you, if you're going to be an owner of a business, whether you're working there or not, you, you don't have to be fluent in, in finance and financial statements, but you have to be at least proficient. And same things with like trust. If your family business is owned by trust, you, you can't have no idea what any of that means and just say, I'll let the lawyers figure that out. Like you have to, you have to at least get a little bit up to speed on, on some of these things in order to really be able to step into that role. So that's, it's, uh, it, it's something I think that, you know, it, it's really important for those that want to keep a family business going to think seriously about how will that next generation, especially those that aren't going to be working there all the time or as connected, learn how to be effective owners. And the, the second thing I would just highlight is that, you know, family business is a team sport, at least, you know, almost all the time. And so a lot of what you're trying to learn and inculcate in the next generation is just not how to be a star, you know, whatever position you're you know, playing. Rob and I are both big basketball fans. So it's not just about being like the star point guard, but you have to be really good at being a team player. And, and that means learning how to communicate effectively. Uh, there's lots of good stuff out there for that. And having some experiences and opportunities to to learn how to, to, to work together with the, you know, the next generation earlier on, you know, some families have done a really nice job of coming up with like, you know, okay, the next generation is going to come up with an investment opportunity, a small one, you know, invest, you know, a few hundred dollars or give away a few hundred dollars or whatever. That doesn't even matter what the result is. It's the experience and process of, of building the muscle memory of working together. And so I think that that's when you're thinking about that development of really positioning the family business to be successful down the road, that whole aspect of how are you going to instill great teamwork is an important part of it. Having covered the five rights that, that they have there, and again, ju just to summarize those, we've got design, decide, value, inform, and transfer. Transfer brings us, excellent. I've been listening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
Transfer brings us on to, and I know it's not necessarily directly linked to necessarily just pure succession in, in that sense, but succession or continuity or transition, how, however we, we term it, is such a big topic. I mean, we, we probably don't have time in this show to cover everything that, that is associated with that. But what are some of the essential elements that you see to successful continuity or transition or succession or whatever terminology you want to use? It's sometimes really hard for the current generation and then the next generation, the current generation to understand that, as Josh said, it's a team sport. You're handing it off to someone. And it's really hard because you're really handing it off to kids and they always feel like they're they're going to remain 30 years younger than you and you can never get over the fact despite they're 60 years old and you're 90 that they're <laughs> kids um, that we see too many family businesses current generation creating a great plan for how they're going to transition to the next generation yet they forget to mention tell involve the next generation in what they want. So here it is, Simba. <laughs> I don't want it. Pass on. <laughs> it happens more than you think that they think they know because you know they've been giving things to their children since they were one day old. Here's a bottle. <laughs> it continues. So getting a process going where you can have what we call eye-to-eye -eye conversations between the current generation and the next generation. What do you have? What assets, roles, and capabilities? What do you want? asset roles and capabilities. It's really hard because you're, this is why the room model helps a lot. If you're trying to do that kind of transition just in the family room and, oh, dad, thank you. It's gonna be really hard to actually do that as an owner. We say when you're an owner room, there's no family language going on. You're an owner, you're a beneficial owner, you're a future owner, but you're not playing the dad role and the daughter role. You're playing the continuity of ownership role. So getting it so that the current generation can not only let go, but involve the future generation in what they want, really hard to do. Josh, Louise, where would you go? Yeah, I think a few of these themes we've already touched on, but just to, to highlight a couple of things. I mean, as Rob is kind of getting to, this is a process, not an event. I mean, kind of think about succession as sort of like the this literal handoff passing of the baton kind of, you know, metaphor, but of course it doesn't, you know, you've got to get into that position first, right? You have to be running alongside each other before you can do the handoff and um, not expect that it's just sort of like, you're going to have a, a simple plan. And it's going to just come off. It really is something that takes, it takes a while. I mean, some families, you know, you, you finish one and you're kind of almost immediately on to the next one. It's really a, a continual process of moving from, from one thing to the next. And, I think as you're as you're going through it, and this is hard, is you have to somehow make it clear that you're valuing what the current generation, the one who've built this, or the, at least this piece of it, um, you're valuing what they did and appreciating what they did without saying that because you did it this way, that we have to do it this way. And, and I think that there's there's a way to talk about this. I think, yes, that worked very well for you. You know, we're we're so, we're so great, grateful for everything that you did, but our circumstances are different. And, and that's just the reality of it. When I was talking to one family business and they were the, you know, oftentimes, you know, we oftentimes talk about it's like the first generation, you know, starts it and the second generation kind of, you know, rests on their laurels, third generation is over again. Maybe we'll come back to that. Uh, I'll, I'll save more on that at the end. But in many family businesses, actually, it's the second generation that re where things really take off. The first generation starts something relatively small. They're really building it. And it's really in the third generation that they're having to sort of see something that's already formed. And that, you know, we're talking one family business and they said, you know, this, this third generation, they weren't here when we were building these walls. And he, and we're, we're sitting in their factory and he's literally uh -huh. referring to the walls around it and, and talking about how, you know, we were there when it was built up from literally nothing. We experienced that with our father and mother and so on. And, and they're just in a very different spot. And, and I think that's important to keep in mind that the, the things that they're going to need to be successful, the skills they're going to need and so on, that what you're looking for in leaders 
is going to be very different than the kind that got you to to this point. And that's a uh-huh. I think that's a really hard that's a really hard recognition, a really hard realization. But it's it's critical to getting this process right is uh-huh. is to value and appreciate, but also say, but that's not our that's not what we're having to deal with. We have to deal with all this other stuff that that you didn't. Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. And family businesses can be a fantastic enabler for wealth generation, for people living fulfilled and and happy lives. But there's also, you're saying about the, the generational differences of those that perhaps start the business and start to build the generation of that wealth. The second generation who are then potentially growing it and then third generation beyond and we've heard the phrases clogs are clogs or shirt sleeves are shirt sleeves in three generations but what what can families be doing to help their their own family members to become responsible with this wealth to try and avoid that the cliche of the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves well we answer it in two parts one is to rebut the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves which we think is not saying you're saying it is simplistic thinking that's actually untrue in many in many cases. So the first thing is to don't accept that. There's a thinking that it's going to be built up and it's going to be torn down. Mm-hmm. Our belief is much more that it can be built up and with the right kind of decision making, it can continue. Don't assume it's going to go down. Don't assume that the third generation is going to mess up. We live our life, Josh and I, working with great family businesses that are third, fourth, fifth, 12th one was 21st generation so there is it's no your fate is not to be a third generation failure so we can talk more about that and we statistically can show why that is that's not true on you know growing next generation to be responsible with with the wealth there are a few things that we we see our clients doing you know really well The, the first is around most of the wealth of the family is in the business and you want your next generation to view it not as a investment but as a i'll use a word just you know a phrase a beautiful business any business that i get in and really understand how it works how the employees what the culture is what they make how their supply base works there's a bunch of incredibly interesting interesting things we have stories of some of our clients going and they they made, or they made, oh, sugar beets. And the grandfather took his granddaughter out into the fields and showed them and had her eat some of the sugar cane that they, they were making. It tasted awful because it hadn't been processed yet. But she, he said to her, darling, this is in your blood. And that's stayed with her for the rest of her life. And indeed, she's the head of the family council for a multi-billion dollar uh, corporation that has sugar processing expose your children not to the money first but to the to what you appreciate about the business first the second thing i'd say we'd say a lot on this is i deeply believe kids see exactly what's going on in you so if you have if you're driving a maserati they'll assume that's what our family does Mm -hmm. so if you show it they'll play it uh, into the into the next generation it, those families we think are most successful talk a lot about how appreciative they are for the benefits that they've derived from their family business they talk about the history from where they came maybe they're the fifth generation they'll talk all the way about the ups and downs they call it the oscillating narrative that got them here they'll talk about the they'll talk about the associates or the workers in their in, in employees in their business and they'll know them they'll know them it's, again it's not an investment it's something that they hold dear to their heart so there are a couple things i think we can go we actually have a whole podcast on that one yeah absolutely and and there are so many areas that we we could go into a, a huge amount of depth on but conscious of our time now it, are there any concluding thoughts from what we've discussed today to, to summarize uh, what we've covered to those listening Maybe I'll offer offer a couple, and then Rob, we can you can have the last the last word from our side. One is avoid the avoid the search for a silver bullet. I mean, often, especially out in the world, so many people are saying, "Oh, we just need to go away for a weekend and write our family constitution. Everything's going to be sorted, and so on." That's not going to do it. 
I mean, this, this involves real, real work in order to get to, to sort of to be successful in, uh, in keeping a family business going. It's so complicated and so many different things going on that you're going to have to really be willing to engage. And so if anyone's offering you some sort of simple solution, I, I would be really careful about it. And I just want to highlight, I think, the, that, that three-generation thing. I think this is one of the most, I think it is one of the most damaging statements or ideas in the whole field of family business. I, and we, we don't use it as, a, so people use it as a scare tactic. We don't use it anymore. I don't think the data uh, supports the idea at all, especially the idea of, of wealth dissipating within three generations. It, it's not, it's nonsense. And I think even more importantly than it not being true is that it creates the self-fulfilling prophecy where people say, I, I, in teaching in class, I can't tell you how many students I've had walk in and say, yeah, I'm the third generation. I'm the one that's going to screw this thing up. No, you're not. Uh, it's not. That's not how this works. Instead of worrying about how you're going to screw it up, you know, focus on the things you can do to make it better. And that's, so I think, where our message is in this five rights, you know, and the structure, core structure of the book is that, you know, there's, it's very, the, the work, it's work, but it's all doable. Uh -huh. And I think what we try to highlight is that you can, you can map out your own, your own course. You can figure out the things that need to get done and have a great time along the way. I mean, family businesses can be a drag. When they go badly, there's probably nothing nothing worse uh, than, than sort of having this business that is draining your, your energy and all that stuff. But when it goes well, there's nothing better. There's nothing more satisfying than building up this business and, and doing it with people that you are, are so connected to. Completely agree. So for what Josh was saying, we often think uh, that family businesses are both the worst and the best form of capitalism. And it depends upon the owners making, having the ability to make great decisions together. If you can get the owners together making great decisions, you've got a good chance of having the best, the best kind of company around. So good luck out there. Fantastic, thank you. And finally, how can our audience find out uh, more about you and the book? Right, so, Banyan.global is our website for, for the company. You can find our bios and uh, links into the book. And the book, again, is called the Harvard Business Review Family Business Handbook. And if you just put that in and probably you want to use Josh's name, Josh Barron, it's easier than spelling Lockenauer. <laughs> Josh Barron, <laughs> Business Handbook uh, by Harvard. You'll find us uh, on Amazon or any other place in the web. Thank Fantastic. you, Ross. We appreciate your Thank you. It, it, it's been great fun. Really enjoyed it. And there's lots in there for our, for our audience to take away. So thank you both for your time. Thanks, Russ. Much really Thanks. appreciate your work you you're did. doing. Yeah, Cheers. good job. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.